0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1st Timothy chapter 2. 1st Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 8 of 1st Timothy 2 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 15 this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover. We are uh, finishing a mini-series, three-part series on God's design for male and female. Genesis says male and female. He created them, and he saw that it was very good. And so today we conclude that series in God's design for the church. And I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul writes to Timothy, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of it. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? O Heavenly Father, I ask who is sufficient for these things. And may now, Lord, you speak through me, and may your word be preeminent. May there be nothing said that distracts from your word. And, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your outlines, I ask the question, what does holiness look like in the church for men and women? What does holiness look like in the church for men and women? You see, limiting ourselves to one sermon on this topic, something is inevitably going to be left unsaid. So I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to have to trust that you're going to be able to do some basic study on your own so that we have time to get to the major points of today's message. We should not be surprised that in verses 8 through 12, Paul is basically saying that men and women have different roles in the church. We are not surprised because although men and women are created equally in God's image, we have seen that God designs men and women to honor him differently in complementary roles. And we explored that. So if you weren't here for the last two weeks, I'm kind of building on some of the foundation. And you might want to look back at the last two weeks' messages online. So here, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that holiness is required for all people. Everyone is to pray for the salvation of the lost. Pray for everyone, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2. And then he tells us how to do that in a church context. In summary, again, trying to fit a lot in today, he says men should lead out in the church By teaching, serving, and praying, and women should concentrate on modesty of dress, self-control, and doing good works that glorify God and learning about the Lord through the teaching ministry of the elders. In other words, holiness looks different on men and women. We are all called to be holy, but we tend to fight different battles in our striving for holiness men, Paul says, have the tendency of getting angry easily and arguing, usually guys, if we're honest, about things that aren't totally important. Now, if you feel like arguing with me about that after the service in the foyer, you're probably a man, right? Like, you just want to talk about that later, that's fine. Paul says that women, on the other hand, have a tendency to be concerned with how they appear. And apparently, to sometimes question whether men know what they're talking about or what they're doing. If you like telling me I don't know what I'm talking about or what I'm doing, after the service in the foyer, you might be a, wait a minute, I thought I had edited that sentence out of the message. <laughs> um, all kidding aside, we are not merely meant to strive to be a godly person. We are to strive to be godly men and godly women. Sir, God has designed you to be the best man of God you can be. Ma'am, God has designed you to be the best woman of God you could be. And young ladies should try to grow up to be godly women, and young men to be godly and strong men of God. And to do that, you have to know what is different about men and women, how God wants us to relate. And today we're talking specifically about how to relate in the church. So that brings me to chapter 2 and verse 12. And the question in your outline is simply this. What is 1 Timothy 2.12 all about? 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What is this about? I think context is the key to understanding what exactly means by this prohibition. I'm arguing that verse 12 is, is primarily about the ordering of the church and its offices. Do you see that in chapter 3, Paul is going to begin laying out the qualifications for elders and for deacons? You have to remember that chapter numbers and verse numbers are a recent addition or a more recent addition than the way Paul wrote in the original text. This is a letter, and basically In this paragraph, the previous paragraph, Paul is setting himself up for what he's going to say in chapter 3. He limits the office of overseer and elder to men in chapter 3. So in verse 12 of chapter 2, he is setting up the case. Note carefully the two things that Paul forbids in 1 Timothy 2.12 are the two things unique to eldering, to being a pastor or an overseer. Pastors, elders, overseers teach and exercise authority in the church. Furthermore, when the text says that a woman is to remain quiet, it is not saying that women should be silent when they walk through the doors of the church. Paul gave instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 about how women ought to pray. So clearly it's not about silence. It's about an attitude of gentleness and a quiet spirit in regard to not clamoring to publicly teach or exercise authority over men. In Peter's uh, epistle, he has a parallel passage about having a gentle and quiet spirit. So let's look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So I was careful just a moment ago to say women ought not to clamor to teach men in public, in the public gathering of the church, or exercise authority over men, because that is what I think the type of teaching that is here forbidden by Paul. So hear me very clearly. Women do teach. Women teach other women. Women teach children. Women are gifted teachers, and women should teach. So you may want to jot a few of these down. Women should teach other women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul says to Titus, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Women should also teach children. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, of faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Why is he sure? He's certain because of the teaching ministry of his mother and grandmother. He wasn't getting it from his father. Women were involved in the private instruction of men, like how Priscilla and her husband Aquila taught Apollos in Acts. Chapter 18, verse 25 through 26 says, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately, the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos needed to be taught, but Aquila didn't say to Priscilla, you have to be silent when we go meet with Apollos. No, because they were They knew that the quietness that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 2.12 is regarding not holding the office of elder and thus publicly being charged with the teaching of men in the church. So my encouragement to all the women of all ages here today is do not get stuck on what Scripture says a woman is prohibited from doing. Rather, turn your focus to the host of things women can and specifically should do in God's church. Quoting another author, Danny Aiken writes this, quote, the fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized for ministry, male and female. Nobody is to be at home watching soaps and reruns while the world burns. I think pun was intended there. He continues, God intends to equip and mobilize all the saints under the leadership of a company of qualified men who take primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church. So don't tell Lottie Moon or Amy Carmichael or Elizabeth Elliott or Kay Arthur that they are sidelined in the church. These women have embraced exactly what Scripture has outlined, and they have thrived for the glory of God through their ministry in God's church. Our church is full of some of the godliest theologically astute capable to teach intelligent humble modest and praiseworthy women on the planet amen all God's men said amen. amen we have some of the best of the best in our church and so there is no strife there is no headbutting or arguing on this issue at Leonardtown Baptist Church because we've ordered ourselves after God's design, but some will argue that this is not God's universal plan for the church. Rather, this was some unique occasion which Paul was writing to Timothy specifically about a problem taking place in the Ephesian church. So, the third point in your outline today is us trying to answer that question, that rejoinder that argument: Why is this design universal and not unique for the church at Ephesus? Why is this God's universal design and not unique to the church at Ephesus? The first thing we can see is that in verse chapter, uh, verse 8, Paul says that his desire is that in every place men should pray. Immediate context being all of the Ephesian house churches. In every one of them, this is how it ought to be, Paul says. So it's not just unique to one specific church. It's the Ephesian church at large. Now, this is bolstered when you go down to chapter 3 and verse 15 at the end of this segment of Paul's letter. And he writes, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Generically, this is how God's house is to be ordered. Generally speaking, God's household is to be ordered the way prescribed in this letter, just like God has a good design for the home as well, which is why we've worked through this from creation to God's design in the home, and now God's design in God's household. And he has seen fit to order the church in a way that helps teach and aid households' homes to order themselves rightly as well. Andreas Kostenberger makes the connection plain when he writes, quote, Just as Paul elsewhere calls wives to submit to their husbands at home, Ephesians 5.22, he here extends the principle of the church to God's household generally, where women are called to submit to the teaching and ruling authority of the church's male leadership. Beyond that context, the writing in the letter, when Paul writes 1 Timothy 2.12, he uses his apostolic authority behind it. In other places of the New Testament, the Greek term that Paul begins verse 12 with, I do not permit, is used with reference to a person in authority giving permission to someone else to speak. It'd be like being uh, in charge of the base and saying, you have permission to speak. Uh, Paul's talking about this like when he's before some of the kings, and the kings say, Paul, I give you permission to lay out your case before me. And so Paul uses a term that has apostolic authority He's not saying, this is what I wish. He's taking an authoritative position as an apostle. And we should quickly add that the apostle Peter gave similar guidelines. But to take things one step further, the third thing that we can see is that Paul makes it clear that the prohibition in 1 Timothy 2.12 is grounded in creation. It's grounded in creation. Verse 13 begins with a conjunction for Or because. He's giving a reason why he has made this prohibition. For, he says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there is no end to the amount of ink that has been shed about these three verses. The CSB Study Bible unhelpfully remarks about verse 15, quote, this verse is difficult, end quote. I was like, I want to write a letter to the CSB Study Bible editors and be like, dear CSB Study Bible editors, thank you for stating the obvious, signed, a pastor studying 1 Timothy 2.15 for his sermon. Yes, it's difficult. But all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting, reproving and training in righteousness. So let me start with what is unclear about these three verses and move toward what is clear about these three verses. First, what is unclear is what Paul means by she will be saved or possibly she will be preserved through childbearing. Are you strapped in? Are you ready? Let me give you two theories. The first theory is Paul is referring to the way that Eve's offspring is the savior of the world. We are all saved through the seed that was born of a woman promised in Genesis 3.15. If you look closely at the verse in English, verse 14 says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor what woman is that? Eve. Yet she, the referent most immediate, would be the woman Eve. So the singular she is why these people think that Paul is referring to Eve and Eve's offspring. And that wouldn't be a far stretch of the imagination, would it? Because Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel. And what happens is Paul, when he's going back in his mind to make his argument for why he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he says four, and he's talking about creation. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are on his mind. And it gets him thinking, not just about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but about Genesis 3. And so he reflects on the salvation that would come from a woman and her unique role in bringing that seed into the world for our benefit. So John Stott writes, If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. So no greater honor has ever been given to a woman than the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. So this is one theory. The second theory is that this has to do with women being preserved from Satan if they adhere to their God-given role centered on family and the home with childbearing being used as a—you ready for this one?—synecdoche. Now, if you haven't taken grammar lately, let's define what that means. Synecdoche is when a part stands for the whole. A part stands in for the whole. So what is the one thing in this world that a man most certainly can never do? Give birth. Now, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like we went to sleep one day, woke up the next day, and the world went crazy, and for whatever reason, does not necessarily agree with that previously stated, stated truth. But friends, the stars don't disappear when the blind look up at the sky, Do they? I don't care how blinded by ideology this world may be, hear me, a man will never be able to give birth. Getting back to the point, the part, childbirth, stands for the whole of what only women are uniquely capable of doing, summarized by Paul as continuing in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, with the general emphasis on the way the majority of women will play a nurturing role in child-rearing. Okay, so that's kind of unclear. It's one of two good working theories. You say, Pastor Jason, what is clear? Well, before I get to that, I want to mention a few things, three things that are not being said. So it's not just not clear. It's simply not part of what Paul is saying before we get to what's clear. One of the things this text is clearly not saying is women can earn salvation by birthing children. That is not what Paul is saying. That flies completely contrary to the rest of Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It further goes against his teaching that sisters can have the gift of singleness and glorify God without ever marrying. As commentator George Knight succinctly put it, interpreting this verse that way would make salvation for women conditional on our works, and specifically on a work that not all women are able to perform. Christina and I know the pain of prolonged infertility. We count it an extreme privilege, a miracle of God that she was able to have a child at all. There are some dear godly women who, due to the fallen nature of this sinful world, are unable to give birth and has nothing to do with their acceptability before God. In fact, scripture is replete with God's incredible care for the barren woman. So we know that's not what Paul means. It should also be noted, secondly, that one of the things Paul is not saying is that women are innately more gullible than men. We know that to be true by experience. In verse 14, Paul says the woman was deceived. It doesn't mean that men are not also susceptible to deception. (laughs) Lastly, these verses do not say Adam was somehow less responsible for the fall. In fact, this verse implies to us that Adam transgressed knowingly. The rest of Scripture makes it abundantly clear. Adam was the one who was held primarily responsible for their sin. So now let's look at a few things that are clear in these verses, in the text itself. Back in verse 13, we, say, we see that Paul says, Adam was given authority by nature of primogeniture. That means he was the first in line. He was first. Paul says Adam was formed first. The order of creation is part of God's design for male and female, for the home, and for the church. This concept is further developed in the fact that in the Genesis account, it records that Adam was given the privilege of naming Eve. And naming was a position of authority, just like he had the authority of naming the animals Adam was given the privilege of naming Eve. So that's the positive argument. Adam was formed first. Find that satisfying or not, that's Paul's argument. Secondly, negatively, Paul says the part part of what went wrong at the fall was a reversal of God-given roles of authority. The, The role reversal was completely opposite. Rather than God, the man, the woman, the serpent... It was Satan, the woman, the man, and then God. It was a complete reversal of authority roles. Paul's concern is that the same thing does not happen in the church that happened in the garden. So he grounds his argument all the way back in the way things were before the fall when God saw that it was all very good. Just like the way that Jesus argued for the lifelong union of a man and a woman by grounding it in creation. Paul is doing the same thing by going all the way back to creation. He's instructing Timothy that God's pattern and plan for authority is for men to exercise headship and spiritual leadership in marriage and in the church. And so we consider lastly today, what is God's plan for ordering the church? What is God's plan for ordering the church? This is what Paul's previous paragraph has all been leading up to. Again, the context here matters. Paul wants Timothy to understand how to order the household of God in every place. So he writes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, to help make that all clear. In brief summary, the church is to be rightly ordered with two recognized offices, elders and deacons. Elders are men whose exemplary Christian character and ability to teach qualify them to be set apart for the responsibility to oversee and shepherd God's flock. Deacons are men whose exemplary Christian character, along with the dignified character and helpful assistance of their wives, serve officially at the church's behest. Or... A possible alternative to my previous statement about deacons would be, based on how one interprets verse 11, deacons are both men and women whose exemplary Christian character qualifies them to be officially recognized as servants of the church. I'll explain more in a moment. This all deserves further explanation, so I'd like to begin with the office of elder. I use that term because that is the term our church has decided to use as its primary way of recognizing the singular office that is described with three biblical terms. One office, three terms to describe it, okay? Overseer is the one that Paul's using in this text in chapter 3 and verse 1, and it refers to the function of giving oversight, surprise, surprise, over the entire church. This is what Paul is using in 1 Timothy. Elder, the second term, can refer to someone's stage of life or possession of life experience or a status of respectability commensurate thereof. Okay, so overseer, elder, and the third term is shepherd or pastor, which is a metaphor for personal care to members of the church. Now, these three terms are used interchangeably about the same office in the Bible— to give you an example that kind of compresses all three of them into one chapter of the Bible, you can look at Acts chapter 20. In verse 17, Paul says, or excuse me, we are told, um, "'Paul called together from Miletus "'to send for the Ephesian elders, "'and he calls the elders of the church to come to him. "'Then later, Paul says to those gathered men,' "'in verse 28, elders, be on guard for yourselves, And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, that's that word pastor, to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So in that one chapter, Paul calls the elders, tells them God's made you overseers and to pastor well, okay? Not only are these three terms interchangeable, but the office is to be held by multiple qualified men such that Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter one, verse five, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And when Peter writes, he writes to the elders, plural, among you as a fellow elder. So the biblical pattern is for a body of elders jointly to give oversight to the entire church, including one or several of them devoted primarily to teaching and pastoral care. Several years ago, this church was led in a transition to a governance that rightly recognizes this biblical pattern. So we won't spend much more time on this office because so much time has been devoted in preaching about this several years back. And if you want to know more, you can listen to some of those messages or you can go in the book nook. We have books about it. But I just want to point out one last thing about elders. The requirements for elders— actually apply to all believers, except for one or two. The point being, elders are not super Christians. They are good examples of what every Christian should be. The distinguishing characteristic is that they are recognized by the church as not only having the character qualities listed in scripture, but also specifically the ability to teach that is listed here as well elders must be able to teach God's word, and as Paul tells Titus, to also refute false doctrine as well. Let's focus now on the office of deacon. Some of you may have been wondering why I gave two possible summary statements about deacons. I said, to repeat myself, deacons are men whose exemplary Christian character, along with the dignified character and helpful assistance of their wives, serve officially at the church's behest, or a possible alternative based on how one interprets verse 11 of chapter 3. Deacons are both men and women whose exemplary Christian character qualifies them to be officially recognized as servants of the church. Now, before I begin to unpack those two statements, I want to say this. In churches where there is no question that only men are qualified scripturally for the office of elder, There is no inherent danger in having deacons who are women. Both summary statements acknowledge that at the very least, women serve alongside their husbands. You should also be aware that the practice of having female deacons has both historical precedence in the church and I believe biblical permissibility based on the ambiguity of the Greek text. So we ought not quickly judge other churches who interpret verse 11 in a different way. As an example, the church we planted, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, has female deacons and I can assure you is in zero danger of confusing gender roles or abandoning the gospel or circumventing male headship in the home. Many of you who have been new, maybe new here to Leonardtown Baptist may not be aware there is a history of having only men serve as deacons here. I need to also clarify that in that not-too-distant history, we had deacons who served like de facto elders. So history and tradition does not always a biblically ordered church make. So the transition was made to remove the exercising of authority from the office of deacon— which opened up at least the possibility for the church to pray through whether or not we would have women serve as deacons at some point. The former senior pastor, current associate pastor, existing deacons at that time did briefly consider this uh, several years back, but did not think that the transition both to a plurality of elders and an incorporation of female deacons— was wise seven or eight years ago because the office of deacon at that time did exercise authority. It would have been unwise. And I want to make myself very clear. Hear me clearly. My goal today is not to convince the church to change anything. Bylaws, practice, nothing. I want to preach the word and at the very least make you aware of the discussion points. You may not have known that verse 11 has two points of view. So let's consider where the discussion lies. For today, you need to know that the Bible's text in verse 11 is somewhat ambiguous. So I'm going to give you two statements that leave open the room for ambiguity and for discussion. Even the net Bible translators wrote in their study notes, a decision in this matter is difficult and our conclusions must be regarded as tentative. There are whole Bible translations that disagree on how to interpret verse 11. The discussion centers primarily around the Greek word that the ESV translates in verse 11, their wives. Their wives. And right away, you need to know that the possessive word there is an interpretive decision on the part of the English Standard Version or any other translation that includes the word there. The possessive word there was not used by Paul. It could have been, it was not. It's absent. The word is simply gunaikas, gunaikos, which is the plural noun of gune and should be translated with one of two words, either wives or women. Those are the options that the Bible translators have. Wives, likewise, or women, likewise. So the question is, does Paul list qualifications for wives of deacons or for women deacons? Bottom line up front, you ever write an email and put bluff at the beginning, bluff, bottom line up front, I don't think anyone can say with complete confidence. Entire biblical translations differ, churches differ, and I think none of them are transgressing biblically warranted practice. So team wives. Okay, wives, team wives argue it would be strange for Paul to discuss women deacons right in the middle of a list of qualifications for male deacons. Secondly, Paul seems to indicate clearly in the next verse, verse 12, that women are not deacons because he says deacons must be the husbands of one wife. And we know where Paul stands on that. Thirdly, most of the qualifications given for deacons elsewhere do not appear here in 1 Timothy 3:11. So either Paul has shortened the requirements for female deacons or he is not actually referring to female deacons. Fourth, given the principle of 1 Timothy 2:12, it appears to be an overarching principle for life in the church which seems implicitly to limit the role of deacons to men. This of course assumes that the role of deacon has authority built into its function And I would just quickly interject, I don't think it does. We just studied how at the end of chapter two, it was a setup for prohibiting women from the office of elder because the two things that Paul prohibits are the two things unique to being an elder in the church. Then on the other hand, you have uh, team women, okay? Team women likewise. So this was team wives. Here's team women likewise. And they argue first, the immediate context refers to deacons generally, and the repeat word likewise indicates a shift of subject. So they at least have a a grammatical something going on here where they say deacons likewise, verse 8, and then women likewise, verse 11. In other words, using that word likewise is like following an outline. That's what they're saying. Number two, the author mentions nothing about wives in his section about Elder qualifications. There's no qualifications for elders' wives. So it would seem strange to have requirements placed on deacons' wives without corresponding requirements placed on elders' wives. Thirdly, elsewhere in the New Testament, there seems to be room for seeing women in this role. So, Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, Paul talks about Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre. And that word servant is the word deacon. So not just a servant of the Lord, and not just a deacon of the church generally. She's a servant of the church at Centra, a specific church she is serving, deaconing. Number four, Paul nowhere says, be subject to the deacons, where he does say, be subject to the elders, or infuse any sense of authority into the servant role for deacon. And finally, church history from Clement to Origen to Chrysostom— Jerome, Calvin, Spurgeon, all the way to present day people like Tom Schreiner, Andreas Kostenberger, and John MacArthur are all in favor of women deacons. It would be hard to say that John MacArthur is drifting on complementarian values. So we focused on verse 11 a lot this morning in part because we're talking about God's design for gender in the church. That's why it matters. And although it might seem that the central question to walk away with is whether or not women can serve as deacons, but it's not. Frankly, it's interesting that the discussion is not between whether men and women can serve in an officially recognized way. It's whether women or women can serve in some officially recognized way, whether they are by proxy wives of their deacon husbands, officially recognized to have character qualities listed in verse 11, or women who would serve independently. So whether or not female deacon or deacon's wife matters far less than the importance and necessity of females doing good works to serve God in the church. The church is designed to display the beauty of God's design for men and women, that we are created with equal worth and dignity, but with different roles to play in the home and in the household of faith. Churches that order themselves rightly and follow God's design, however countercultural it may be, tend to find themselves in places of spiritual health and strength. And so Paul wants us all to step back, take a look at the way it was in the beginning, to see that God made it possible for males and females to exist together in unity, harmony, and flourishing but it requires us all submitting ourselves to God's design and not succumbing to worldly pressures. So may God strengthen our resolve as a church to display the beauty of his glory in the beauty of male and female. I close with this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that He has made. And behold, it was very.